Good morning. It is uh, a real joy to be able to gather together to sing the Lord's praise, uh, to prepare our hearts for hearing from God's word together. Um, I would love to uh, open up Genesis chapter 3 with us this morning. Uh, We're going to read that and then we're going to get right into it as we start this new series. Uh, Due to a technical error, uh, i.e., I forgot, um, there won't be, uh, the Genesis 3 won't come up on the screens, uh, but you will just have to read in a Bible or listen to my dull voice. Uh, But it is the word of Scripture, and so uh, let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife 
his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, please give us your spirit that we might see with crystal clarity with the eyes of our hearts who it is that you have made us to be, the height from which we have fallen, but most steadfastly and surely would you help us to see the hope that we have in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. We pray for your help by your spirit, for the glory of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, One of the really fun things that dictionaries are doing these days, uh, dictionaries which are probably going out of uh, popularity a little bit, uh, is that around November each year, they publicise the word of the year. Each dictionary, whether it's the Macquarie, Collins or Oxford... Uh, will collate their search data. Uh, Sometimes they'll include a public vote uh, and then they'll shrink their list down right until they get that one word that captures the essence of that year. It's a fun exercise, seeing which which words pop up as, as they do that. But there are two that stand out, especially in light of what we're considering this morning. The word that came up in 2020, word of the year, uh, decided by Macquarie Dictionary, was doom scrolling. You have to remember, this is the year of COVID. This is the year of bushfires over east. Doom scrolling. This is what doom scrolling is defined as. The practice of continuing to read news feeds online or on social media, despite the fact that the news is predominantly negative and often upsetting. You can picture it, can't you? Someone, someone sitting for hours in the dark in their bed on their phone late into the evening, one article after the next, and the shock value of each article creating a strange kind of attraction or addiction uh, to what's being presented. The second one that was uh, striking uh, was just from last year, actually. Uh, by Collins Dictionary. Collins Dictionary Word of the Year last year was permacrisis. Permacrisis is an extended period of instability and insecurity. It's obviously a mashup of the words permanent and crisis. These words do capture something of the mood that our world is in at the moment, doesn't it? COVID is not yet done with us. There's a war between Israel and Hamas. There's a war in the Ukraine. There's no great compelling hope or reason uh, 
to think much of our politicians. The cost of living is rising. Artificial intelligence seems to generate quite a lot of fear. There's no shortage of conspiracy theories about, what, about what's happening in the world. It appears that the Western world we live in is changing its values. People fear what might be happening with the Earth's climate. There's no solid ground. Which brings us to Christmas. Hope is one of those needs of the human soul. Without it, the soul shrivels. It becomes cynical, dull and unmotivated. But when the human longing for hope is met with something of real substance, the human soul thrives. It becomes full of joy and it can rest secure. Hebrews 6 verse 19 describes the hope we have in Christ this way. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And at Christmas we remember this. That hope is here. When Jesus Christ was born in that little town of Bethlehem, hope broke forth into human history. Because of this small child, in this small child, the hope of the world has come. Jesus is here. And so we can have hope. So here's the goal for the next three weeks as we head towards celebrating Christmas together as a church. Here's the goal. As we turn our eyes to the birth of our Saviour Jesus, we would see that our deepest longings for hope are met in him and not just the crumbs left on the plate at the end of Christmas dinner kind of hope. This is abundant hope. Lavish hope. Safe and secure hope that cannot be touched. That's the goal as we head towards Christmas. We're going to plot our way through the Old Testament and we're going to see uh, different key promises that are given to us throughout the Old Testament as we head towards Christmas. Each week we're going to see a different aspect of who Jesus is and what it is that he's done for us. And this morning, we're going to be going right back to the start, in the very first chapters of the Bible. As we look at Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see these two things. That the problem is a lot worse than we realise. The problem is a lot worse than we realise. But, is the second thing, the hope offered to us is more secure then we realise. So that's what we're going to get into. Let's set the scene. The first two chapters of Genesis are full of life and colour. God speaks the universe into being. All of heaven and earth are created by him. And then he fills the earth. And there's life everywhere. 
The oceans, the land, the skies are filled with animals, plants, stars, moons, and sun. And God created a man and a woman. He created them in his own image, each full of meaning and worth, yet different from each other, with a beautiful complementarity. And God put the man in the garden with a job to work it and keep it. To work it, he was to garden it, cultivate what God had created, help it to flourish and to produce everything that it could. To work it, but also to keep it. He was to keep watch over the garden, to guard it against pests and predators, anything that might disrupt the beauty and the order of the garden that God had created. Life, life in the garden came with the responsibility of obeying God's command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, God is lavishly generous to his creatures, telling them they can have access to all the trees of the garden. But there is one that they shall not eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, because only God has the right to determine what is good and evil, God has that right, not his creatures. Having set the man uh, this role in the garden, a substantial and demanding role, God concludes that it is not good for the man to be alone. On his own, the man would, be, would not be capable of this work. He needs both companionship and friendship, but he also needs help for the role that he's been given. When we read helper, we ought not think of someone who just runs the errands for the man or cleans up after him. The word for helper here is used 21 times in the Old Testament. And 15 of those times, it's used to describe God. It's a dignifying and important word that describes the role of the woman together with the man. There is something about the man that makes him deficient for the role set before him. Just as there is something deficient in the woman for the role set before them. But together, in this beautifully ordered dance between the man and the woman, the same but different. Together they partner together in the work set before them by their maker. Let's, uh, let's zoom out briefly. Here is a world created wonderfully and beautifully. As we read those opening chapters of Genesis, God is seen as a master craftsman. The world he has created, the humanity he's brought forth from the world, the abundance of life that bursts forth, here is a work of art, a wonder before all wonders. And for the man and the woman set in the garden, their hearts and minds are full of hope. They have a creator they know and love. They have a dignifying role in the work that they have to do. 
God has been overwhelmingly generous to them in creating a world to explore and to delight in, to cultivate and to keep. And if only the story were to end there. If only chapter 2 did not turn to chapter 3. If only the narrative finished there. That would have been our inheritance. But the narrative does push on. And so we turn to chapter 3. If chapter 2 were like a giant mirror, a world and a humanity that reflects to us something of the the glory and the beauty of the Creator, chapter 3 is the the shattering of that mirror, having been dropped from a great height. We read in chapter 3 of a serpent, more crafty than any other animal that God had made. He has this unexpected ability to speak. And with this ability, it deceives the woman. The serpent plants the seed of doubt and disbelief in her. And the woman now questions the truth of what God has said to her. And disbelief having been planted in her, an unwelcomed desire grows within her. A desire contrary to what God intends. She saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. Something to be desired to make one wise. And then the desire, left without restraint, issued forth in a catastrophic decision. The woman took and ate, then gave some to her husband standing right beside her, and he ate. It's a helpful question to ask. What should have they done? Well, the woman should have taken her stand upon the word of her creator, her good and generous father in heaven who had given her breath in her lungs. And what about the man? The man should have come running, wielding an axe, ready to take the head off this thing, this unholy creature that's found its way into the garden. But both man and woman choose friendship with this wicked creature. They pin their allegiance with the deceiving serpent. They rebel against, they betray their creator. The rest of the chapter details the tragic consequences of their actions. The man and the woman hide from God, they point the finger, they make excuses, their trusting relationship now tainted by shame and suspicion. The Lord God casts curse and judgment upon the snake, the woman and the man. And as the final nail in the coffin, humanity becomes a race destined for death. Though they do not die straight away, they begin to die. The moment the fruit was eaten, the process of decay and death begun. And now death exists. An unwelcome, 
yet inevitable force that creeps closer with every passing breath. Here's how one person put it. Now life is a shadow, a dream, a watch in the night, a span, a step, a wave of the ocean which comes up, breaks and disappears, a ray of light that shines and is gone, a flower which blooms and wilts away. It really is not worth the full and glorious name of life. If the opening two chapters of Genesis paints with lavish and lush colour, chapter three paints in black. We contemplated the hopelessness our culture feels in today's age earlier. Doom scrolling and permacrisis. And of course, in light of Genesis chapter three, you would have to say that there is actually something true about that. And it's not just about what's happening in the world out there, but it has to do with the condition of the human soul. For we are all the offspring of the first man and woman. What existed in them exists in us. There's a fountain that springs forth within each person. A fountain that pushes us away from our creator. And that is our condition. And so, 100% of people will die. In the words of Genesis 3, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. been said before uh, that the devil is in the detail. But here in Genesis 3, it's actually the reverse. Deliverance is in the detail. In the details of Genesis 3 are found the fountainhead of hope. Fountainhead that bursts forth with unstoppable force, producing a rushing river that leads to a large open pool of fresh spring water that revives the soul. In our chapter for this morning, God casts judgment on the serpent. God declares that because you have deceived the woman, I will curse you more than, any, more than every other creature. It's there in verse 15. And it's there in the details of that verse that we will find our hope. Having declared this curse upon the serpent, he then says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're meant to imagine here uh, two sets of offspring. The offspring of the woman, her children and the generations that follow and the offspring of the serpent. Seems likely, uh, given other parts of the Bible that speak back into Genesis 3, that the serpent is Satan in disguise. 
and that the offspring of the serpent would refer to the wicked spiritual beings that exist in our world. And these two sets of offspring will not live in harmony, but they will live as enemies. And so the curse here is against the serpent. You see, the serpent had tried to win followers for himself in his uprising against the Creator. Followers who would join him in, in the rebellion against him. And it seemed like he was making progress, doesn't it? With crafty intent, he was able to win the man and the woman over to betray their creator. But God, in his sovereignty, his might and his power, with a word, he cuts the tie between them. Satan's newly found followers are now his enemies. But with the curse upon the serpent, we can see such caring grace from God, can't we? The man and the woman had chosen to be the serpent's friends. But God distanced them, distances them. He positions them on his side of the battle against Satan. Instead of leaving them in their friendship with the evil one, he protects them by replacing it with enmity. And then the judgment of God places on the servant on the serpent finishes with his ultimate demise. It appears that in the struggle between the offspring of the woman and not just the offspring of the serpent but the serpent itself the conflict will culminate in a final battle. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. An offspring of the woman will come who will strike a fatal blow to the serpent, square on the head. The serpent will die. We see here a death sentence placed by God on the serpent for his treachery and rebellion. Yet the offspring of the woman, the one who strikes the head of the serpent, will not be left untouched. You see, the offspring of the woman will be struck on the heel. This offspring will take the hit, so to speak, on behalf of his race. And it will cost him. It's an interesting little detail in amongst the rest of the curses and judgments of God in Genesis chapter 3. The saints of the Old Testament, those who had faith in the promises of God before the coming of Jesus, found hope in this verse. With confidence, they held tight to the promise of a future serpent crusher. They would wait with anticipation for the day this offspring would come. Yes, as the Lord's people, we suffer now, but one day. Yes, we're oppressed now, but one day. And friends, the hope which they looked forward to, the promise they searched for and waited for, the substance of that which they hoped in was found in a crying, small, 
thumb-sucking little baby. A small child who couldn't even speak was born. And the full weight of hope for the world rested in that child. Here is the child Jesus who would come and defeat our enemies. The one who would bruise the head of the serpent. But one who would be bruised on the heel in the process. What was written in poetry in Genesis 3 comes to us with crystal clarity as we watch the life of this baby child grow to mature adulthood. The bruise on his heel would in fact be his death. A death where he would carry the full penalty for the sin and rebellion of the humanity God had created. In his death, the full force and power of Satan dropped on him. Yet, because of his might and power, it was only a strike to the heel. Because this is the serpent crusher. He would rise from the dead. Satan and the forces of evil would be defeated for good. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 tells us that he disarmed the rulers, he being God the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. You see, at the cross, Christ triumphs. And so because of that, Satan and evil and the destruction that he causes have an expiry date. The victory of Jesus over Satan at the cross was final. And here it is, friends, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And here's a question for you. What could we see on the news? What is it that would uh, happen in our world? What crisis could be waiting for us on Monday morning? What in all the universe could take this hope away from us? This is the risen, reigning Lord Jesus who has defeated every enemy that exists. We'll be heading towards Christmas this year as a church, contemplating hope. In the risen and reigning Jesus, the one born at Christmas, we find that hope is here. Hope is available. There's a deep pool for us to drink from. Hope is a powerful force that we read of in the scriptures. And with the resources that we have in our Saviour Jesus, 
There's a hope that, we, uh, that springs forth, forth from Christ and we can grab a hold of. And there's this New Testament book, 1 Peter, that majors on the theme of hope. And I wonder if a verse in there that describes the hope that we can have might be something of something that we could encourage one another towards this Christmas. 1 Peter verse 8 says this. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the hope that's available to us in the Lord Jesus. I wonder if you would join me in praying for that as we close. Our Father, you've been generous to us in speaking through your word this morning to us. We ask that as we've contemplated the hope that is ours in Christ, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would allow us to see with clarity and conviction the victory and the triumph of your son Jesus over all the evil forces in our world. Father, would you give us great joy that springs from our hope in the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would do this powerfully amongst all of us this Christmas as we turn to the birth of our Saviour Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.